This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Hi, I'm Alan Katz, and welcome back to the How Not to Make a Movie podcast, The Making of Bordello of Blood. Episode 5, Endings Are Never Pretty. This episode also could be called How Not to Release a Movie or Life Lessons from a Movie Nobody Wanted to Make. As Bordello's production went on like a rowboat ride to hell, a feeling of resignation settled over us. Resignation and frustration. Ed Tapio was Gil's assistant, and so much more. These days, he's an incredibly talented TV producer in his own right. As we speak, he's producing All-American Homecoming for the CW. What I remember, Alan, is I remember... Gil being so frustrated because no matter the schedule that we put together, Dennis would basically blow it up like the first two hours of the day, almost every day. When you say blow it up, what do you mean? He wouldn't do, you know, something that was supposed to happen and you guys would have to try to work around it. He wouldn't hang on something or wouldn't walk a certain way or wouldn't go in an entrance the way Gil had blocked it out. And that Gil was constantly having to redo his shot list. I remember, you know, just being so utterly frustrated for him because we couldn't seem to get a day that we had planned shot as we planned it because Dennis, every time he worked, he would blow it up. Gil Adler. Well, he didn't want to be there to to begin with and he wanted to leave as quickly as possible. So so you'd think he would want to shoot as quickly as possible, but just, just to the contrary, we would set up a shot. We would rehearse it once or twice. We would say, okay, now we're going to release the cast and we'll set set cameras and lights. And at that point, way until that point, he would go, ah, I don't think I like that. I don't, I don't want to walk there. I don't want to. And I would say, well, yeah. where do you want to walk? What, what, what do you see yourself doing? What is the character dictating to you? And he would go, oh, I don't know. That's your job. I don't know. So he would just tell me what he didn't want, but he could never tell me what he right. did want. It, it's quite amazing what a million dollars won't buy you. By now, if you recall, our schedule had flipped to accommodate Dennis's HBO show, which rehearsed in L.A. on Thursday and shot on Friday. That meant our work week, our Monday, was everyone else's Saturday. Well, that annoyed our Canadian crew who wanted to spend their weekends with their families and loved ones. Not a bunch of mercenary American filmmakers with more money in their pockets than sense. The other actors in the cast also became frustrated with Dennis because every day he'd ask us to shoot him out early so he could go back to the hotel and rest. That meant we'd shoot Dennis' side of every scene with the full cast. But when we turned around to film the other actors, Dennis would be gone and they would have to act their scripted dialogue against Dennis's improvised dialogue being read by the script supervisor. Well, can I tell you, actors hate being disrespected like that. Corey Feldman felt especially disrespected. Corey showed up, he knew his lines, he was professional, you know. He was Spencer Tracy. Corey was great. Corey, I mean, he was was right on there. He was uh, ready to do whatever had to be done and put the time in and take direction and have a conversation. I remember he had some good ideas and he was constantly pitching ways to make the character more interesting. Do you remember how Corey's relationship with Dennis evolved? Because it did. I mean, I think Corey tried to, in being a professional, he tried to have a professional working relationship with Dennis. He he tried to be friendly with him. And and I think Dennis- Wasn't interested. That's a nice way of putting it, Gil. That's a really nice way of putting it, because Dennis was just a dick to him, from what I remember. You could say that about his relationship with almost everybody. I don't know if you guys even know this, but I was doing runs across the border to Blaine for Corey and Angie to get them both cigarettes and weed. 
<laughs> oh, Ed, 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 this is Ed. the whole point of the exercise. Start talking, Ed. <laughs> no, I mean, Corey, Corey couldn't get, couldn't get um, uh, a Marlboros. I don't know if you remember, he, there, there was no Marlboros in, in Vancouver. And so um, I went over the border one day, believe it or not, to go to Taco Bell because there was no Taco Bell in Vancouver. And I came across the market and I came back with a, a carton of uh, smokes, a Marlboros, and I brought him back for Corey. And he was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Thank you. Because he used to chain smoke Marlboros. And he didn't like whatever he was buying in, in Vancouver. And so for like four straight weeks, I would hop over the border. I'd get cigarettes for him and for Angie. And twice I picked up a couple of joints for him, too, from a friend of mine that I hadn't blamed. And, <laughs> the, and the, the weekend that I stopped doing it, they searched my car from top to bottom. I didn't have anything in the car. That's one of the reasons Corey was so, so in, you know, in such good shape because I was supplying him with cigarettes. I was basically his prison, I was basically his prison bitch. The thing we were most apprehensive about as we stumbled forward was whether or not our makeup special effects would play the way we needed them to. Hiring Dennis, an actor our audience didn't really care about, forced us to cut our special effects budget, which was stupid because makeup special effects are exactly what our audience cares about. Chris Nelson and his Canadian crew were all very talented. Chris is an award-winning special effects artist, but he wasn't that award-winning special effects artist at the start of his career when we hired him. But then... It simply isn't fair to expect expertise from people who aren't experts yet, especially when you know this about them. Not sure we could rely on our untested Canadian team, we flew Tales from the Crypt's longtime effects maven Todd Masters north. I think that came up twice. The first time was when you had asked me the formula for blood, and then like the initial assessment, and then I came up for the ending to just kind of, you know, see, because I think at that point we knew we were going to take stuff back with us and pick it up. Uh, so I came up to kind of, you know, witness the connective tissues. And I actually, I, I, I remember, I don't know if it was quite pleading, but I remember going to Gil a couple times. I remember coming to you and saying, like, let's not shoot the final stage of Angie because she looks like witchy poo. And <laughs> if we shoot it, then we have to recreate it. And that's going to hurt because it's going to be the same thing just as silly and costing probably the same amount if not more to do it over again and so i was i was kind of like well, if we just don't shoot it then we can come up with a really cool finale and you know it was just so chaos uh, so much chaos at the point it was just like kind of get out of here uh and take it back to van nuys and uh we kind of knew that we could we could really get our hands on it chris who supervised the makeup effects in vancouver uh, ended up winning an Oscar a couple of years ago uh, for suicide. Well, also to Todd's point, though, um, I don't know if everybody remembers, but at that point of the movie, when we were getting close to the end, we'd lost about 60% of our crew. People had had started moving on. Yeah. And we we were dealing with different people in costumes. We were dealing with different people in, in the regular makeup department. We were dealing with different people in grip and electric. Remember how many people had started bailing, you know, about... Four weeks in. Yeah, that one of the problems of shooting in Vancouver in those days was just that. As you got yeah. close to the end of a show, people didn't stay as they do in Los Angeles or in the States. They didn't stay till the end and then move on. Yeah. They started looking and sniffing around for other shows. And since there was so much work coming up, they would jump as soon as somebody made them an offer because we had two or three more weeks of shooting and the new job was going to be, you know, five weeks of prep and five weeks of shooting. It's 10 weeks versus two or three weeks. And they would just jump. The movie's climax still lay ahead of us. So did a scene where Dennis's character learns that Corey's character and a few other vampires are hiding out at an old abandoned power plant. 
In the lead up to the climax, we were now working nights. Rarely a fun experience unless you're completely adapted to it, which we weren't. As we settled in for the night's work inside the power plant, Dennis began needling Corey. Whereas Corey previously had held his fire, this time in front of the whole crew, Corey fired back and got huge laughs. Dennis didn't like it. I seem to remember it was Corey doing an ad lib on Dennis's riff and we from um, uh, Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. Like, and we are out of here. And Dennis really didn't like that and confronted him about it. And Corey was like, yeah, well, I thought it was funny. We all thought it was funny, actually. And uh, <laughs> Dennis took offense, is my recollection. Who swung at whom, do you remember? My recollection is that Dennis was the one that was the instigator. Dennis got all up in Corey's grill and Corey responded. And suddenly, I don't know if if fists are flying accurately describes what, what happened. I, I, I don't think Dennis has fists are flying in him. Corey, I think, Mike. Yeah, but I think it was more like, uh, I think it was more like, you know, pushing and shoving, like, you know, keep me away from him. But it, but it escalated and, and absolutely, suddenly... Absolutely, yeah. My recollection is that Dennis put hands on Corey first and then Corey reacted. And the strange thing was that as Corey suddenly got the upper hand and Corey clearly had the upper hand and was quite capable of hurting Dennis, nobody leapt to Dennis's defense. No, no. What are you saying? There is some justice in the world? What? <laughs> yeah, uh, as my my memory was kind of watching the crew cheering on Corey. And then suddenly Lee Knipperberg suddenly realizing, oh, I, I can't let this happen, can I? Lee Knipperberg was our first assistant director, the adult on the set. Lee Knipperberg was the one who stepped forward and, and, and separated them. Yeah, that's how I remember it. A few days later, we took our shot at shooting the climax. The word futile springs to mind. Imagine if this group of professional filmmakers had thought for two seconds about what the downside might be to making a horror movie, a genre that works best at night, in a place as far north as Vancouver at the peak of summer, where the one thing in really short supply is night. Did I mention the word futile springs to mind? I remember, Alan, you and I were aging very rapidly. And I also remember that we were shooting in the summer and we were shooting nights and we realized one night while we were shooting that the, the nighttime was only six hours of a 12 hour day. And all of yeah, a we sudden, did French hours. Yeah. And all of a sudden we were shooting, you know, at four o'clock in the morning as the light was coming into, into the building. And I remember we, you know, we just panicked and we were, we were just shooting fast and furiously with multiple, as many cameras as we could pull out. How many cameras did we run that night? It, it, in our desperate I think we only to... had three cameras. We I, had I, three. I yeah, we, we had three. And yeah. it, it got so bad that Tom Priestley was getting frustrated and he took over one of the spotlights. Well, it wasn't just one department's problem. It was just the whole thing just didn't have uh, the grace of luck to it. You know, there was mm -hmm. the, the gods of filmmaking were not sh uh, shining brightly on us. So uh, we... Packed up our toys and went home. The climax was Dennis's last day. I remember when we had his last shot, I'll never forget this. Um, and he was done with the movie and I just wanted to throw him under a bus by then. <laughs> he came over to me and gave me a big hug and said, hey, listen, you know, I forgot his wife's name, but he said, if, if my wife and I invite you up to Santa Barbara for dinner, you'd come, right? And I said, no. <laughs> he goes, no, 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 I'm the funny guy. Stop being funny. 
I, I'm, I'm serious. If I invite you up for a dinner, you'll, you'll come, right? With your wife? I said, no, Dennis, I wouldn't come. I wouldn't come anywhere near you. I want nothing to do with you. And I walked away from him. And he, and he yelled after me, oh, come on, you'll come, you'll come. If I invite you up for dinner, I know you'll come. Wow. And that was the, that was the last I ever had anything to do with him. Gil would be done with Dennis until the reshoots anyway. And there was plenty that needed reshooting. The last day of filming came and went. We were on location, second unit, having the Cypress ski area above West Van stand in for Tierra del Fuego, where at the beginning of the movie, Phil Fondacaro's character digs up Angie's character. When our first AD, Lee Knipperberg, announced that we'd completed principal photography after finishing the martini, a collective shrug went up. A few of us shook hands, but none of us felt like we'd accomplished anything. Survived, maybe, for now? Normally, the producers would have sprung for a rap party, an important part of the whole filmmaking experience, but we knew for a dead certainty that none of our Canadian crew would show up at any party that the Americans threw, not even for the free liquor. Colleen Neistat, now a Vancouver City Councillor, then our production manager, as usual, came to the rescue. I did have the rap party at my house. I remember because I, I think I was the only American who showed up. Yeah. I went. I went and I, I, it, was, it was awkward. Well, it's just, it, it was such a bad show and so hard on so many people. Bordello wasn't the first movie to finish principal photography without being finished. It just felt like we had so much further to go to actually get there. Still needing a ton more work were the water gun scene, the ballroom blitz, and the torture chamber scene, the one where Dennis complained to Joel and Joel told me my people skills were shit. Top of the list, our climax in the glass church was unfinished. On the bright side, though, reshoots in L.A. meant we'd get to work with our Tales from the Crypt team and at the Van Nuys Airport hangars where we'd made the first Tales feature Demon Knight. Randall Throp was Tales costume supervisor. These days, he's the manager of the costume and prop archive at Paramount Pictures, his dream job. For the record, I've known Randall longer than I've known anyone else in this story, over 40 years. True fact, we once threw the coolest Tupperware party the Cobble Hill section of Brooklyn has ever seen. You guys had that office. I think it was on Coenga, not far from Universal. And uh, Ed called and said, you got to get over here and look at this, what the editors are looking at. you got to come over and see this. So I came over and the editors showed me that sequence with the uh, vampire prostitutes being sprayed with holy water. And it was unbelievably bad. They looked like blow up sex dolls, like melting. They didn't look like human beings melting once they were sprayed with the holy water. And one of the things that we discovered that the costume department had done for those vampire prostitutes was they put them in a polyester chiffon. You cannot do a stunt with fire in polyester because it melts. It does not catch fire. You have to use natural fibers. So that's when Warden Neil and I, we had to reshop and try to match what they had done in Vancouver here. with silk chiffon as opposed to polyester which became expensive it's not cheap and to try to match it but lord have mercy maybe the best part of being in la with our team was having our american production manager fa miller back we were a very tight group we all liked yeah. each other and you know fa was the one fa miller was the one who really made sure that if you weren't there to have fun or to play and be nice, you were out. You know, yeah. it all took was one bad episode and you were out the door. 
and all of us always felt like we were kind of cherry picked, you know, like, cause we, we did, we depended on each other. I depended on Todd, Todd depended on what I could do, you know, Steve Melton, Greg Melton, you know, it was always, we always worked so well together. And I think, you know, Tales from the Crypt was probably the best experience of my career because it was also fun because you were basically shooting a mini movie every week. I had a situation in Georgia where I did a really super low budget horror comedy called Stand Against Evil for IFC that we did very much like Tales. We did three day episodes. We blew up a demon every episode. I blew up a car. I flipped the car for $800,000 an episode full union. And I had people turning down other work in Atlanta on the hopes that we would get picked up for another season. And all three seasons, we had less than 10 people turn over because of the wow. lessons that I learned from you guys. F.A., um, I can't give enough credit to F.A. I, I yeah. learned so much from F.A. as a in the business, not just as a producer, but just at, in the business. I learned so much from F.A. And, and um, I learned each year I appreciated him more and more in his subtle yep. sort of silent way of going about doing things. He yep. never kept things from me. You know, when there was an issue, he would tell me the issue. And then we would just, we'd talk it out and figure out what to do. But but F.A. was uh, was such a blessing in, in my life yeah. in, in terms of my career. Oh, and as a crew yeah. member, I have to say, F.A. really did uh, the idea of the open door policy. I mean, I could go in and talk to him. And there's so yeah. many times I would yeah. go in and just say, oh, my gosh, we're worn down on this one. It's like, oh, now, darling, just take a break. Just breathe. You know, he would always but he was just he did have that open door and he would stop by. He would chat. I mean, he was he was very, uh, you know, tuned in to the crew completely. And like I said, and we all know this, if you didn't fit in, you were gone. And that was, you know, he could clean house really quick. Yeah. yeah uh, but that was a good thing because then, yeah. you know. Right. Things got right. back and to normal. First, it was sort of fun to get back together, you know, for this short time. But then as the night went on, it just kind of disintegrated. And I remember Erica wouldn't come out of her trailer. Dennis was pouting and Chris Sarandon was very nice. I remember that. But uh, I mean, we were all pulling our hair out. I mean, we're there until what, two or three o'clock in the morning trying to reshoot that. And that's when I decided I'm done. I'm going back to New York which is what I did. That was the Bordello of Blood is the film that made me say, I'm not doing this. I'm done. It was my birthday, by the way. And I'm killing vampire prostitutes. I'm dealing with actors who are just jerks and fire stunts. And I just said, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. Forget the blood, forget everything else. I left. I moved back to New York. In addition to reshooting and cutting Bordello, Gil and I had to get the final season of Tales ready for production. And right off the bat, there was in. Do you remember, Alan, whose idea was it to go to UK? Because it wasn't ours. Was it Joel's or was it Warner? Uh, was it uh, HBO? There's something in my head said there was still some some anger at the union, and it was just one more way to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because really, there there was no reason, no real reason to do it in London. It was it was a cool idea. It's London on someone else's dime, plus per diem. But if I'm honest. Tales from the Crypt had grown a little long in the tooth, with a fang, whatever. Making the show away from L.A. could have revived what had become bone-weary. Alas, aside from the cool factor, the last season of Tales was a painful extension of Bordello into the Tales world. We didn't go to London because it was a cool idea. We went, as we did with Bordello, to piss off the union representing our crew. Alan and I were in London, setting that up, and then they said, well... 
you need to come back. And they worked out this schedule between Universal and Warner Brothers. They worked out the schedule that I would be in London for three weeks, New York for three weeks, uh, not New York, LA. So I could cut the movie and then I would go for three weeks and come back and they would. And so I, we did that. I mean, Alan, we did that for a long time, right? Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, London, what we started with the feature film, that seems to be when the wheels began to kind of come off when suddenly some of us got excluded for one reason or another, you know, neither here nor there, but suddenly the team wasn't the team. Bordello of Blood certainly exacerbated that feeling uh, amongst our crew because, man, we we left the country. Yeah. And then the last season of Crip comes up and we leave the whole continent. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, but you guys entrusted me to go after everybody. And we literally went after everybody. I mean, I remember Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, calling and apologizing because he was doing a kid's play in Newcastle. I mean, they were all so nice. You know, you and McGregor inviting us to the train spotting premiere. Um, Jane Horrocks, you know, inviting us to, to filming of AbFab. Just so much of, you know, different than here in the States, the way the British actors approached everything. Oh, or Oasis gosh, yeah. coming and using our stage. Remember oh. when Oasis came and used our stage for the music video? You know, when we got there, first of all, you know, all these actors who they said, oh, we're going to get all these English actors, which we couldn't get here because they're, we can't fly them over and they'll, they'll work for us at uh, Ealing Studios. We found out, no, nobody wanted to work in the UK because of taxes. Yes, right, so right, called, right, yes. When we called Lewis Gilbert, who lived in Ealing, and I got his phone number and I called him and I said, we, I love your work, I want to work. I want you to do it. And he goes, oh, my boy, I love Tales from the Crypt. A wonderful show. I love that show. I'd be delighted to direct one. I'm going, wow, this is going to be great. We're going to work with Lewis Gilbert. And I said, Lewis, I'm going to send over a car tomorrow morning, pick you up at your house and bring you over to the studio. And he goes, wait a minute, where are you? I said, I'm in Ealing Studios. And he went, oh, no, 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 no. I can't. I can't work here. The tax situation. No, no. I thought you wanted me to come to Los Angeles. And oh. we got the same reaction from Roger Moore. Roger Moore invited us to go to Switzerland. We had so many people say to us, oh, if you were only in L.A. and you wanted me to come and you'd pay for the flight, you know, I'd be there. And we couldn't. Obviously, when we were shooting in L.A., we didn't have money for flights like that. So we didn't use them. But when we got to London, we found out, well, we can't get these people anyway. Yeah. Our structure, well, we were three days in, two days out. That system did not work there because, I mean, you can't build as much there. I mean, there's a reason why why they use locations so much more there are great locations or any kind of great location you want it's tricky to get to those locations because you know london's a very slow city to move around we we bumped into all kinds of problems our our first english production manager a nice man with some lovely credits but he misled us repeatedly i don't know if you guys remember i was the first one there i got there three weeks before you guys and i was uh looking for apartments and uh Gil, do you remember the Where Are the Makita conversations? Oh, yeah. So we had Malcolm, Malcolm, our first production manager. Malcolm, right, you know, Malcolm. Once, Mal, yeah, once, well, oh, I, like I said, I was the Malcolm first one there. Him. I was there three weeks before everybody. And I had apartments. I had a, a like five apartments for you to look at, Alan, five for Gil. I had some for Greg. I had one for Scott. When you guys all got there, you know, um, Greg came up with the plans to build for the first episode. And like three days into prep, um, the Dominic comes up, uh, sorry, Malcolm comes to me and goes, yeah, we're having a hard time with the sets. And Gil walks on the set and sees guys hammering with nails. And he looks around and goes, where are the Makitas? 
And the guy goes like, what's a Makita? <laughs> I remember, I remember looking at him. I was so outraged. I went, what's a Makita? What do you mean? You know, it's like a, it's like a staple gun. You know, you put two pieces of like, boom, 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 boom. And it sets up. <laughs> and I remember them looking at me like, is he out of his mind? What's he talking about? But I do remember saying, bang, 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 bang. And the sets up. <laughs> Back in Los Angeles, we were used to our construction crew arriving at our stage with their pickup trucks loaded with tools. In London, our construction crew arrived at Ealing Studios having just gotten off the tube. They didn't bring any tools with them. That was our responsibility. I remember it was such culture shock for us when Crafty came out with literally tea and, and, and cookies. And that was the craft service card. Right. And all the English people were happy. And Gil and I and Scott are like, what the fuck? Where, where's, what, what is this? Right. For reference, Joel Silver used to refer to our craft services table at Tales from the Crypt as gum and water. I, I remember Malcolm and having a conversation with Gil and I very, around about the first day of production when the question was asked, do we put, the tin, the biscuit tin down on the cart, or do we hand them out? If we put the biscuit tin down, the lads will take more than one, you know. <laughs> I even, uh, how about the conversation deal with Malcolm when we had our standard deal memo and he's like, looks at us like, you can't have that. It's like, what's wrong with it? It says, it says they can't drink on the job. They right. all go to the pub at right. lunch and have a beer. Right. So we rewrote it to say, no drinking on the job except for a beer at lunch on at the lunch. company pub. Yeah. And even then, we didn't want to do that. I remember being very resistant to that, going, I don't like this. They're going to come back and they're going to be, you know. And you go into the canteen and our whole crew was in there having a pint. Yeah. <laughs> it was such culture shock. And and when we did do catering, the double-decker buses, you know, for food Ooh, yeah. was just so odd. It was just so well, odd. And the food was horrible. Do you remember it? I, I suspect you'll remember this because I remember it rather vividly that we got a phone call. We needed to bring out another bus for lunch. What, what happened to the bus? We, ha we have a double-decker bus for lunch. He goes, yeah, we can't use it. They threw up in it. And I was like, <laughs> what? what? Yeah, the crew threw up in it. I go, the crew? I mean, was it one person, two people? Well, more than two people. And well, what happened? Well, I think the food was off. And I'm like, what? I mean, do you remember that? I do. Yeah. Sadly, I do. When you were talking about the double-decker bus, it just that image just came back to me because I remember going <laughs> out there and seeing throw-up all over the bus going, holy <laughs> shit, what the fuck is this all about? It, it's funny the little things that, that, um, that you remember, the little tiny snippets. Yeah. Um, I, remember, I remember when Bill Malone was directing and you and Alan had gone home and you had left me to close. And you had told me that, uh, you know, pull the plug at 10 p.m. And Bill needed like two shots left. And the first AD comes up to me and says, uh, we're probably going to go till 1030. And I said, no, no, I'm pulling the plug at 10. He goes, no, we'll, we'll get to work, you know, but it'll take till 1030. I said, no, we're pulling the plug at 10. And he goes, you're an assistant. You can't do that. And Bill Malone looks at him and goes, yeah, he can. Yeah, he can. <laughs> He's speaking for Gil <laughs> and Alan. He can do that. <laughs> And yeah. Bill looks at me and Bill looks at me. He's like, Calm. he goes, I'll get it. Ed. Don't worry. 10 o'clock. We're good. <laughs> and he got it, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He got it. Yeah. yeah. The last season of Crypt was subpar. Mia culpa. I took my eye off the Tales from the Crypt ball to focus on the new Tales from the Crypt-like show HBO had ordered from the Crypt Partners, based on all the old EC science fiction comics. I'd been pitching ideas about it with no luck. I figured we'd sort out what the show was when we got back to L.A., except that's not what happened. 
it turned out Joel had other plans, and they didn't include me. Alan Kassir, our manager, called me one morning while the negotiations were still ongoing. He said, uh, I need you to come to the office, to my office. So I went to his office in Century City. He wanted to tell me in person that Joel, he said, Joel decided he doesn't want you to do it. He's not going to negotiate with you anymore. And that was it. I, I, I said, you know, I said, but, but Gil is still doing it. He said, oh yeah, he, he wants Gil. That was a really hard, that was hard. Mm-hmm. And I took it, I took it rather personally. There was a moment, I think it was a, a day or two later, I guess, and I don't know why, what precipitated this phone call, but for some reason, I was sitting in my house in Los Feliz, and I get a phone call, a message being left that Joel Silver and Bob Zemeckis are calling me. And for the life of me, in retrospect, I can't imagine why I, why I didn't pick up the phone or return their call, but I did not. Now, I know why. I was so angry. Right. I was so, I was beyond any reason, but I would be willing to bet if I, if I either picked up the phone and had a, an adult conversation, I would be willing to bet that I would not have been completely cut off the way that I was. You know, Scott Nimmerfro told me a couple of years long after the fact that, that I kind of took it the wrong way because it wasn't, the intention wasn't to cut me off, that that there were a couple of those horror movies that you all did where, where Joel had been, would have been quite open to, to me working on them, but I never returned a call. Now, that's not what he said. That's what I'm saying. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either, to tell you the I, truth. I, mean, I, I don't remember... know why suddenly I was singled out as the problem, but it must have been because I was the one who was sent packing. For me, it presented a problem. All my produce work, hey, everything I'd written over the, for a decade had two names on it. And going out into the marketplace, suddenly I was nobody and nothing. And, and, and the problem with, with having two names on, on a script is, is you know, when, when you hand it to someone, the first question they're going to ask you, it's a perfectly good question. Well, how much of this did you write? And so I was stuck literally having to go back to square one in a sense, because I, uh, Alan Kassir was, was, I think was, he tried to, to, to get me to do, to do really the one thing that, that I should have done in that moment. Hey, Scott Nimmerfro in a moment like that, I know what Scott would have done. He'd have sat down and he'd have written a script. Mm-hmm. You want to know what, 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 who I am as a writer? I'll show you. But I was experiencing the very beginning of a writer's block because unless I was being paid I had no interest in writing and I was interested in writing whatever the man wanted. Hey, what do you want me to write? So I I put myself into a really dumb place. The shortest answer to solve my problem was to sit down and write a goddamn script. You know, when I, I approached you and I said, I need to take your name off our, of our scripts, that, that was a problem. And I I can understand why, why that was a problem. I I think that might've been part of why we might became acrimonious. I, 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 I think you you resented me asking to do that. Um, I can't remember that that was what it was. I, I just remembered being very um, disappointed and just being very like I, I don't I don't understand why why did this happen and then if <clears throat> if it did happen why don't we continue on? Yeah. And, and to tell you the truth, you know, I 
I wish I would have known that Bob and Joel called you because I would have I would have jumped in there. Um, you know, because I had conversations with Joel, which were not, you know, very nice to the point where I, I was convinced, you know, he was going to throw me out of the office as well. Because I said, what the fuck are you doing? You know, what 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 does this got to do with you? This has nothing to do with you. Why, why? And he never gave me a real answer that answered the question satisfactorily or even unsatisfactorily. You know, my relationship with Bob got stronger and stronger. I used to always say to Bob, I, I don't understand. I, I just don't understand. I, Steve, Steve D'Souza and Peter Eilert became really good friends of mine along the way. I used to talk to Steve more than I would Peter. You know, his stories about writing um, or rewriting. Uh, Die Hard. Die Hard. Yeah. His stories about that are just, I mean, unbelievable. And his, and his relationship with Joel as uh, in, in, in that writing process and the pressure and all that. Yeah. And even, even talking to him didn't really help me any because he didn't understand it. I never quite understood what was motivation. What was the purpose? And I would often ask Bob, and Bob didn't want to deal with it, you know, because he would just blow it off and say, well, you know, Joel, it's Joel. You know, he he likes to divide and conquer. He likes to do this. He likes to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I never really got to the bottom of it with him. Divide and conquer is, is there's something to that. I, in retrospect, you know, as I look back at Joel, Joel tried repeatedly to offer me things. Joel handed me his copy of the Sandman graphic novel. He put that into my hands personally. He said, you should read this. Now, when Joel Silver hands you a piece of material, he's saying, read this and get back to me. Yeah. That's what he's saying. That's, yeah. Why would you not read that and get back to me? And I did not. Now, in part, I thought, because, you know, why are you offering this to me? I'm, I'm, I work, you know, Gil and I are, are a team. And so I, I saw that as, I, I, no. But I, but I think that, that is, there is some truth to that, that I think Joel, Joel just thought differently. And I, don't, I, I think Joel didn't care about, I don't, you guys think you're a team. It's not here or there to me. I, you know, I'll use you as I need to use you for, for my own ends, which yeah. is perfectly understandable. I, you know, that's- Yeah, because, I don't, because I don't, also yeah. I've seen, I, also after that, I, I would see him do stuff like you just said, offer it to one guy, only mm-hmm. to have it come back and them do it together. After the fact that when he came, when they came up with an idea or, or pitched the story and he went, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. I heard from Nimrofro that Joel didn't have a particular problem with me. He's a disruptor by nature. Yeah. And, you know, he, he just throwing a monkey wrench. There was nothing more than that in it. It's not like there was an idea he had that was better. He just, he's disruptive. Yeah. And hey, man, that's, that's who he is for better and sometimes for worse. The thing that I, I sort of missed terribly was just getting together every day yeah. and doing the work. You know, that's, that's the thing I missed the most. And, and uh, a lot of it, I blame myself because, you know, why didn't, why didn't I pick up that phone and call you and say, what the fuck, what's going on here? What's going on between us? Forget Joel, forget everybody else. Who gives a shit about anybody else? And I didn't. And I don't know why I didn't, except I know I got very busy with work and I was very worried about working. Sure, sure, sure. But even, even, even I can't blame it on that. Cause I go, no, you know, you're, you're bigger than that and you're better than that. And why didn't you? Why? And, and, and I don't have an answer for that. And so the crypt team went one way and I went the other. Joel called me one day and he said, you gotta go, you gotta go have lunch with Bob. 
So you guys talk, talk and, and come up with a show. So I called Bob and Bob was over at Universal. I said, listen, Bob, I, you know, I don't know what to tell Joel. I, 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 what, what are we going to do? And he said, I tell you what, just come on over. I'll get deli from Jerry's. I'll get chocolate chip cookies. We both like that. And we'll have lunch and we'll talk. And then I'll call Joel and I'll say, we had a nice talk, but we, we didn't come up with anything. I said, great. That's good. Okay, let's do that. So I go over, have lunch with Bob. And while we're talking, you know, we're talking about our youth and what we liked and what we didn't like. And I was saying like, well, you know, I, I kind of liked Outer Limits, like the gallery. Uh, Night gallery. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and he said, yeah, yeah. And, and, and he said, I like, I like this and that. And I said, yeah, yeah. And why do, why do we like that? Why did we like that as kids? I said, well, you know, it was, it was different. It was weird. It was quirky. It was, you know, wasn't it? It was unexpected. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt the same way. And so we finished our lunch. We finished our cookies. And I go, okay, Bob, I'm going to go. Don't forget to call Joel. And he goes, no, no, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. So I go home. And that night, about 830 in the evening, the phone rings and it's Joel. And he goes, what the fuck is the matter with you? I go, what, 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 what did I do now? He goes, why don't you tell me what's going on? And I go, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, I got off the phone with Bob and I had to call Bob. He didn't call me. And I had to say, what happened to you and Gil? And he said, well, I want Gil to tell you. So tell me what it is. So I go, what? What, what are you talking about? And he goes, tell me the idea. Bob said you had a really good idea. Tell me the idea. So I go, well, Joel, we, we had a few of them. So let me check with Bob and I'll call you back. Let me just call Bob. And I call Bob and I go, Bob, are you out of your mind? I got Joel calling me, asking me, what's the idea? What? We don't have an idea. There is no idea. And he, and he starts to laugh and he goes, well, why don't you tell him, you know, it was like what we said about our youth. We like this and we like that. It was twisted. It was this and that. And, and, and it was funny, but it was scary. And then just say, you, you will work. We're working on it. And, and then he'll leave, he'll leave us alone. So I go, Bob, I thought you were going to talk to him. Just, just, just call him back. Call him back. So I call up Joel and I tell him, and there's a silence after I speak. And he goes, I love it. I love it. Let's do it. What do you mean? He goes, I'm going to call Chris Albrecht and set up a meeting for you, me, and Bob. And I'm going, Joel, 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 click. I call Bob back. Bob goes, don't worry about it. It'll go nowhere. It'll, it'll die. Two days later, I get a call from Joel. You, Bob, and I have a meeting with Chris Albrecht at uh, HBO to pitch this new show. And I go, Bob, there's no show. You, you and I know there's no show. So how are we going to pitch? So he goes, Chris has always been a big fan of yours. He'll understand what you're saying. He'll see that there's no show. And he'll probably say, you know, we should work on it some more and come back. Don't worry about it. So now we go over to Chris Albrecht's office and it's the three of us. And, you know, Chris is waiting for someone to start the meeting. And so they go, you know, tell him. I go, tell him. Yeah, Bob, tell him, tell him. So I go, well, you know, it's this idea and it's, and I tell him and, and Chris Albrecht gets up from his desk and he's on the 41st floor in Century City. He looks out the window towards the, the ocean and pauses for a minute and turns around and he goes, let's do it. And I'm like, let's do what? And he goes, that, the show you just told me. I go, well, what do you mean let's do it? And he goes, we'll do 10. And Joel goes, yes, that's terrific, yes. And everybody's congratulating everybody. And I'm like, I'm like sweating. I have no idea what we're talking about. And I take the elevator down with Bob, just the two of us. And I go, Bob, what, what, what are we going to do? I mean, we, you know, we, you and I better get together and talk about what this is because I, I don't know what we sold and I don't know, I don't know what their expectation is. And Bob looks at me and he goes, Gil, I'm going to be busy for a while. I'm making this movie Contact. So you're kind of on your own. And I said, but, <laughs> but, but Bob, but there is no show. I mean, be, be candid with me, Bob. You, you know, there is no show. And he goes, yeah, you'll, you'll figure it out. 
And that's how perversions happened. Bordello missed its Halloween 1995 opening. Instead, Universal dumped the movie the following August, The Doldrums, where unloved movies go to die. I don't know what the rest of y'all did, but I put together a little theater party. It was me, my wife, uh, Aubrey Morris, and one or two other friends. And, and we went to, the, to a movie theater in Burbank for the premiere of, of For Delaware Blood, and there was nobody in that movie theater. <laughs> that, was yeah. the, that was so sad. That was, I, I, I went out to the ticket booth and I said, has it been like this all day? And she went, yep. <laughs> Janet and I went on uh, on Sunday and it was kind of the same thing. We saw it uh, at the plant in Van Nuys. It was a pretty big theater and there was probably 10 of us in there, unfortunately. Yeah. I was the only wise one who didn't go to any screenings of it. <laughs> I remember saying to Jeannie, you know, we gave it the office. I, I, I can't give any more. So I'm going. Soon enough, Bordello appeared smaller and smaller in everyone's rearview mirror. These are talented people. They never stopped working. And Randall didn't stay in New York all that long. Six months later, I got a call to do the remake of The Shining and, uh, you know, in, in Colorado. And so I was like, OK, fine, I'll come back to L.A. I worked with Gil until uh, until House on Haunted Hill. And then, you know, when when my late wife died, I left. I actually went and lived uh, with uh, Glenn's family in England for four months after that. And Gil got me to come back into the business in 2004 on uh, Starsky and Hutch. He called me out of the blue and said, I got a really, I shouldn't say this. I got an assistant that I need to replace. <laughs> and would you, would you come work for me? And I wasn't doing anything. I said, absolutely, Gil, I'd love to. And we did that and Constantine together. And then he went off to do Superman. And my dad was sick and I couldn't leave at the time. And my dad ended up dying. And then he went off to do Superman in Australia. And that was the last time we actually, uh, you know, worked together side by side. Of everyone on the Crypt team, Greg Melton came out the healthiest by a lot. Kind of goes back to even like the, um, almost the studio system. I think there was a lot of people making movies they didn't want to make. They were stuck in contracts and they just, they oh, did. Yes, I, yes. I remember like with Dead Easy, I'm like, we're doing Dead Easy. Oh, we're not doing Dead Easy. We're doing Bordello of Blood. I just switched over. Like, that's just where we're going. I didn't really stop and go, is this the right thing to do? It's way above me. This is this is where the train's moving. I've got to stay on the train. I'm the easiest person to replace, you know? <laughs> yes, and yet the hardest in, in so many ways. <laughs> I look back on it all, and it's all just sort of like, was wonderful. I, ha I had I had a I had a I had fun up there. I was getting to build a lot of stuff. Huh. I was working with people that were very supportive and creative. We were getting things done. How oh, dare you have a good time on that movie, Greg? I'm How sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm just saying that I I just look back on it. I, I obviously had a much different experience. You you were really in the trenches, you know, of like I, I know what goes on. I, I read the emails that Frank would send AMC that got him fired. That's Frank Darabont, another Crypt alum, getting fired from The Walking Dead, the show he developed and executive produced. Greg was Walking Dead's production designer from 2010 to 2012. He helped create the show's look. He's a real big part of its success. I'm so glad I don't have to deal with any of that. I'm just down, I've got my little department. We'll do this, I'll pick some colors. Everybody will be happy. I'll pick some colors. <laughs> oh my God, you're making me realize I've done this all wrong. Colleen Neistat's perspective. I, I, I had never, ever experienced, uh, and I've been around, you know, extreme personalities, but Joel stands out. 
And I, but I lived through it. I mean, this is one of the things I think if I could live through that show, if I could survive that show, I, I can certainly survive a political campaign. You know, my, my perspective of Joel, it, it might be a little bit different in, in the sense that, you know, I spent probably 15, close to 15 years of my life working with and for him. Yep. There, there's a part of me that's very grateful to him for giving me the opportunity, giving us the opportunity on Tales and then going further with me on some of these other things. And then it all ended rather abruptly when, you know, he one day threatened, I was coming back from Ghost Ship in Australia. And he said, I have our next movie to do Gothica. And I said, well, no, I just got a call from Lorenzo de Bonaventura, who was running Warner Brothers at the time. And he said, look, we want, we want you to do bigger movies for us. I have three scripts I'm sending you. You can do any one of them. And I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm leaving Australia, but I'm going to Tahiti for a week. So I'll be back in 10 days. And he said, great, read them and just tell them which one, which one you want to do. 15 minutes later, I get a call from Joel. And he says to me, you know, you're doing Gothica. We're doing Gothica. And, you know, if not, you'll never work in this town again. And I'll make sure Warner Brothers on and on and on right out of Sunset Boulevard. Yes, and yes. so I said to him, I'm not doing any more of these movies where I don't have a substantial ownership interest because he wouldn't give me ownership in the movies. And he totally blamed it on Bob. He said, well, the problem isn't with me. The problem is with Bob. Bob doesn't want you to have any ownership. And I said, are you kidding me? I know Bob better than I know you. Yeah, That don't fly. I go up to his office at Universal because he has, he has, uh, he, he gets uh, deli sandwiches from Al's and we have lunch and we just chat about stuff you know, shows and what we like and what we don't like. So I said, this is not coming from Bob. This is coming from you. And then finally, when I came back, I went over to his office. He was on a plane going to New York. So I said, okay, well, tell him I'm back. And I want to continue the conversation we had last week. Because I said to him, Joel, you know, there's no sense in arguing over the phone. I'll be back in a week and we'll sit down and we'll, we'll talk. You know, you're doing this movie. You're doing this movie. You don't, you, you call Lorenzo back and you tell him you're never, you're not doing anything for him. You don't only work for me. So when I got back, um, he was on a plane. I, got, I went into his brand new office, which was used to be Dick, Dick Donner's. And then when Dick left, you know, they gave it to Joel. They redesigned it and remodeled it. Beautiful place. They turned it into a Frank Lloyd Wright palace. Yeah. And so they said, uh, so I, I went in there. They said, oh, Joel's on a plane. I said, okay, just tell him I called. He should call me when he gets back in a week, whenever. I, I saw walking to my car and they come running out of the office saying, come back, come back. We have Joel on the, on the phone. He's on the plane. And he just checked in. We told him. He wants to talk to you right away. So I go in and they put me in his office, his brand new office. And I'm sitting at his desk talking to him on his phone. And he's screaming and yelling at me about how, you know, I don't care if you're back. I told you last week what it is. You're doing Gothica and on and on. And I said, Joel, the one thing you should know about me after 15 years is don't give me an ultimatum. If you give me an ultimatum, I'll tell you to go fuck yourself. So just don't do that. You know, when you come back, we'll sit down and we'll talk it through. And he, and he kept going. He kept going there. And he kept saying, I'm not, I, you have to say yes before I hang up. And finally got to the point, I said to him, I said, if you, if you keep saying this to me, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you to go fuck yourself. And he did it one more time. And I just yelled into the phone, fuck you. And I smashed the phone down so hard. I broke the phone. I thought I broke my fist. And I walked out of there so heated and went to my car and just, you know, just went home. That's sort of how it ended between Joel and myself, because then thereafter I started doing bigger pictures with Warner Brothers. For a run of years, Gil produced Warner Brothers' biggest tentpole movies. Starsky and Hutch, $170 million at the box office. Constantine, starring Keanu Reeves and Rachel Wise, $231 million. Superman Returns, $391 million. 
and Valkyrie, which Gil made with Tom Cruise and Kenneth Branagh, good for another $231 million. And then Gil stopped. We'll get to why. Finally, there was me. In hindsight, the Bordello experience set off something. It exacerbated a problem I didn't know I had at the time, bipolarity and depression. As anyone who's ever experienced that darkness knows, depression robs you above all of perspective. You can be deep into one and not even know that's your problem. And if the deep-down reason for the depression and everything that comes with it is, say, a, a secret you've denied, well, nothing good can come of that. For a while, I struggled. After a year of telling me to write something for Pete's sake and getting nothing, my manager Alan Kassir fired me too. I struggled some more until Scott Nimmerfro introduced me to the guy who'd be my agent for the next decade, Nick Mechanic. Nick's a podcast unto himself, but Nick believed in me. He got me onto The Outer Limits, where for two years I thrived. Now here's the thing. We made The Outer Limits up in Vancouver. When I returned to Vancouver in 1999 as a co-executive producer, people still remembered Bordello, and not in a nice way. I had to prove to quite a few of our crew that I wasn't then the same asshole I'd been on Bordello. The Outer Limits years were good creatively and financially. Helen and I started our family. Our son Tristan was born in Vancouver. And then Tristan's sister Bianca was born in Los Angeles. For a while, I contemplated getting naturalized up in Canada. That's where all the TV work was at the time. But my wife and kids weren't going to move with me to Vancouver. If, if I wanted a TV career, I'd have to fly to see my family on the weekends. I chose my family. For almost the next 20 years, I stopped being a writer and producer and became a full-time dad. Best gig I'll ever have, bar none. My son loved playing soccer and basketball, which I coached. Hell, I even started a whole club team for my son to play on. Even being a dad, I still had to do things big. Also, I coached a lot of Ultimate Frisbee, a great game that's entirely self-officiating. This being Silver Lake and Highland Park, among the players I coached in Ultimate were Billie Eilish and her brother Phineas. For real, Phineas is very good. But my self-loathing depression continued to feast on me. With me not working much anymore and expenses high, the money soon ran out. We lost our house, the one Tails bought for us. We went bankrupt. Three days before Christmas 2016, a month after Trump got elected, I came within literal inches of killing myself. Here's the public service part of the podcast. Immediately afterwards, I drove straight to my GP and I told him what had happened. I'd been contemplating medication, but frankly, it scared the shit out of me. I'd done some research and I'd found a mood stabilizer that I hoped would work for me. My GP whipped out his smartphone and concurred. He wrote the script. That night, I told my family what I intended to do. They were grateful. I was finally doing something about it because my self-directed rage was doing everyone harm. And that's when I got really, really lucky. Within 36 hours of taking that first 25 milligram dose of Lamotrigine, I leveled. I literally felt the depression lose its grip on me. And I started to get healthy for the first time since, since I was 14, it turns out. You see, I've been keeping a secret from myself that at 14, I was molested twice by the religious director at the synagogue in northwest Baltimore where my family belonged. Dealing with that 45 years after the fact was damned hard. But I came out the other side. Like I said, I bounced. I became born again, not in a religious sense, in a life sense. I started to write again. Boy, did I. Suddenly, 
My head was filled with stories. I started to tweet and blog. I started my Faithism Project podcast with my friend Randy Lovejoy. He's a Presbyterian pastor, and I'm a devout atheist. We have some really amazing conversations. You should check it out. And then one day, Ed Tapia called me. We'd been in communication all along, and Ed told me that Gil was sick. He had cancer, kidney. And so I reached for the phone. You know, when I was diagnosed with cancer, you called me, and that meant the world to me. I mean, you have no idea how much that meant to me after all the time that we hadn't spoken, and, and out of the blue, I get you, you call me. And, and well, we had a nice conversation. We did. But then nothing happened after that. I sort of lost life for like 10 years as well um, because I, I got involved with veterans. I got involved with this one young man who, who wrote a book called Fat Tuesday. And, and we, were make, we were developing it and working on that. And then, and then he flew to San Diego, no, San, San Antonio and committed suicide. So when, when I read that in the New York Times that he had committed suicide, I, I just went into a tiff and, and just spiraled out of control and, and also questioned my interest and desire to help or was I really helping anybody in terms of the veteran world? And so that, you know, between the cancer and that, you know, I just sort of, I guess, spiraled out of awareness of where I was for like many years. I hear you. I hear you. I know how that can be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and time suddenly gets, gets lost when, when, you're, yeah. when you're deep inside your own head for whatever reason that you are deep yeah. inside your head. And, and uh, until you resolve it, if you can resolve it one way or the other, you can, you can stay there. Well, I had, no, I had no interest in making television or movies. I mean, I, I would get these calls from Warner Brothers about the tentpole pictures that I, was, that I had been making for them. Mm. And I would just say, no. I mean, I wouldn't even explain. I would just say, I, I can't do that. I, I, I know it was, it was a very strange, you know, experience going through that. Not the, not the same as what you went through. I think what you went through was even harder, but I didn't, I never quite understood. And year, years passed after that. And I, and I never, you know, understood why, why, why we didn't continue from that. Why we didn't build something from that. And, and I, I blame myself. You called me about the cancer. Well, you know, everything in its time. So I'm working on a bunch of film and TV projects trying to reinvent myself. My current manager, Jeff Field, took me on as a, I kid you not, a reclamation project. I think through Twitter, I first made the acquaintance of Jason and the Dads from the Crypt podcast team. They review episodes of Tales from the Crypt and give parenting advice. It's genius. Jason wanted to interview me about a crypt episode. I forget which, but the interview went great. And Jason said, hey, we're going to do a podcast about Bordello of Blood. Do you, do you want to do another interview? And I said, well, Jason, Bordello is more than just a one-off interview. Bordello is more like a, a whole podcast unto itself. And here we are. Getting back in touch with everyone, Gil especially, well, that produced the biggest twist of all. My mind is boggled by this, this podcast and how this podcast happened, the almost incidental way in which it suddenly came together and what, this, what doing this podcast has unleashed. I'm stunned, delighted. I could not be happier. 
and to, to, to learn along the way that it's a story that really we all wanted to tell. Certain things have to happen for other things to happen. And I, I know in order for us to have, to, to renew our relationship, I, I know I had to get past certain things. I couldn't start this until I was ready. Mm. Now I'm ready and more than ready. And, and, and look at what we're doing as a result. We're, we're, we slip right back in, in, into, into a creative relationship. It's, it's like we never left. It's true. And it's very gratifying. What really surprised me is when I told other people you know, who were part of our, our circle that we were talking regularly. And that just thrilled people to know, that, to know that we were talking again. Other people thought, well, that's good. It's about fucking time. We better do it now because we don't have that much more time to. Uh, but at our back, we always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. Yes. Life is so strange, so unpredictable. It's a lot like a really good movie. That's why it's worth sticking around. You just can't tell where it's going. And even when you think you've, you've got it all sussed, you don't. A couple of years ago, like six years ago, I called up Gil and I said, hey, you want to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Bordello Blood with me? And we had been invited by a local theater in Vancouver to screen it. It was actually the 20th anniversary. And I, I had stayed in touch with Gil, but talking about Bordello Blood was kind of that subject we had never broached you know it was like one of those like <laughs> let's just leave that behind us and have a new friendship you know and so i i didn't talk to him about it and then all of a sudden this opportunity arose the rio theater in vancouver which is like this really amazing place that they pride themselves on what do they call it the experience you cannot download and it's like wow they want to show the movie and Gil lives here. We got to do this. And so I invited Gil to come over and I believe you did a Q&A, didn't you? Yeah, we, I did a, Q, a little Q&A before and a, little, and a big Q&A after. It was pretty cool. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's a fun movie with a crowd, especially if they're shit faced. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and the Rio does sell booze. So that helps. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think Ed snuck us some joints over the border. But anyway. Um... <laughs> <laughs> that, believe it or not, blows our minds. Despite the soul-crushing, relationship-ending, career-threatening process of making Bordello of Blood, the audience just doesn't care. Not one iota. Hey, you remember I mentioned coaching Ultimate Frisbee? Well, here's a funny twist that'll bring the whole concoction around. Like I said, Ultimate self-officiating. There are rules, but not a ton. And one day I needed to look up a rule, and so I went online to do it. And I discovered something that also blew my mind, and I think it's going to blow yours. Know who invented Ultimate Frisbee? Joel Silver. No shit. You can look it up. There's just no escaping the guy. On our next episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast, The Making of Bordello of Blood, the dads from the crypt finally get their turn. They have unanswered questions of their own, and they're going to pose them to all the characters in this story. See you then. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal, the Crypt Keeper, would have called terrible, content.